This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara ong This is Abraham Goldberg, director of JMU Civic and faculty member in the Department of Political Science. And I'm Jacqueline Dobrin, communication specialist here at JMU Civic. In this episode, we hear from Lieutenant Colonel Dan Maurer, who is a judge advocate and assistant professor of law at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point and a fellow with the Modern War Institute. Lieutenant Colonel Maurer graduated from JMU in 2002 and first served as a platoon leader in the Sunni Triangle north of Baghdad. He went on to receive a law degree from Ohio State University, serve as a JAG officer and appellate counsel, as a strategy fellow for the Army Chief of Staff Strategic Studies Group, as Chief of Military Justice at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and as Chief of Operational Law in Italy. Lieutenant Colonel Maurer has written and co-edited three books and published extensively in various civilian law journals and Army professional journals on military justice and civil-military relations. He also contributes to security law-focused sites, including Lawfare and Just Security. We invite you to engage in the conversation with us on social media, at JMU Civic on Twitter and Facebook, and at JMU Duke's Vote on Instagram. Enjoy the episode. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Can you start by sharing why you joined the military? And this next question actually comes from Nick Swain, who who you know. But did you realize what you were getting into when you joined the ROTC at JMU? That's a great question. And just as a, a quick sidebar, so uh, Dr. Swain, who I know is Lieutenant Colonel Swain, was the head of the ROTC department um, for my last year at JMU in, in 2001 to 2002. So he was the head of the ROTC department and uh, just a, a great leader, great inspirational um, uh, mentor and model for what a, what a, a scholarly kind of officer ought to be like. And, and so I very much appreciate his mentorship over the years. Um, so what did I expect coming in? So I'm a third generation army officer. My grandfather on my dad's side uh, was a captain in World War II. Um, served in France and Germany and North Africa. Um, my dad um, uh, is a retired lieutenant colonel, um, served in the, mostly in the 80s and the 90s, um, and then uh, and did ROTC as well in New Jersey. And uh, so I, I, all growing up, I was an Army brat. I knew kind of, you know, what the Army lifestyle was like, uh, what an officer's lifestyle was like, um, kind of, you know, you know, professionally what to expect. Um, however, uh, big, big, however, uh, so my dad served, um, you know, in the eighties and the, in the nineties at the end of the cold war. Uh, and then, you know, after the fall of the Berlin wall, things changed dramatically and, and we're no longer facing a you know, existential threat from the Soviets. Now we're deploying soldiers and troops to, to places like Eastern Europe, uh, and in peacekeeping type missions in, in various places like Somalia, um, the, the tempo was, was very different. And my dad was very fortunate in that he, ne- he never had to deploy to, to hostile fire zone at any point in his career. So I was lucky growing up. I never, never had to miss my dad for extended periods of time. Um, so that said, I joined ROTC in 1998 as a freshman. 
Um, I had an ROTC scholarship. Uh, so I knew going in that this is what I was going to, I was going to do kind of part-time while in school. Um, and then I knew that, you know, if I did it successfully, I was going to, you know, graduate and get, and get commissioned as an officer. And, and that's the, the path that I knew I was going to take from kind of from day one. Um, there was a period where uh, after my freshman year, um, I, I had some, I had some doubts. Um, I am fairly introspective and, and a bit of an introvert, uh, always have been. And when I saw upper class cadets getting in front of these, you know, formations of their fellow students and, and giving orders and directions and calling cadence and planning things and, and just being kind of gregarious and, and just, you know, being a, a military leader, I, I thought there's no way I can do that. There's just no way. That's not who I am. I, I had this misconception growing up. I, I don't know what I was thinking. So I had this, this period of, of doubt this summer between my, my, soph- my freshman and sophomore year. Um, and then uh, my parents were living here at West Point, actually, uh, during my freshman year of college because my dad was assigned here. Uh, so I came back and worked over the summer at a training facility off campus where the cadets train over the summer. And I, my job was to basically run like the little mini commissary for the active duty soldiers that would come down and train the cadets. So I interacted with um, real soldiers all day, every day, all summer. And over the course of that summer, uh, something clicked. I don't know what it was, but by the end of the summer, I was ready to get back into it. And and I felt comfortable um, knowing what to expect and, and feeling like I was a little bit more confident that I could do it. So from there on, sophomore year on, I had I really had no doubts, and, and I I enjoyed ROTC. But again, this is pre nine eleven, so we didn't really know what to expect. I, in my head, I was thinking, you know, maybe once in a career I'll have to I'll go someplace terrible and and have to serve my country in that way. But um, you know, the likelihood of of a, a long extensive deployment is is very small. I mean, look how how successful Desert Storm was, how short that was in comparison to previous wars. That's the that's the warfare of the future in our heads. Um, so then summer of um, 2001 happens and I'm approaching my senior year um, and we're trying to decide what, um, you know, what we're going to branch, what functional area, what, what specialty we're going to uh, take on when we get commissioned. And I was considering... Uh, becoming an aviator, a helicopter pilot. Um, so a part of that summer I spent in Hawaii with a, with a Black Hawk helicopter unit kind of shadowing uh, real lieutenants to see what they do. And to a person, they were bored out of their minds. They didn't like flying because the, as, as officers, they were, they were more managers of actual pilots than actual pilots themselves. And they felt like they just weren't having enough fun. So most of them were like, I'm getting out. I'm going to join the Coast Guard where I can fly full time uh, or join the Navy. Uh, so they, they left me with a sour impression of, of uh, helicopter pilots in the Army. Uh, and then that, so that's August of 2001. Then September of 2001 happens. And then we're forward deployed. Uh, obviously, at the time, we didn't know for how long, but pilots were in hot demand. So uh, they got their wish eventually. But by that point, I had I had changed my desire from aviation to uh, engineering. So I became an engineer officer. Um, but because 9-11 happened very early in our senior year, um, that really kind of sharpened 
our focus. Uh, you know, it's it's no longer kind of an academic thing. Now you know you're going in, into a profession that currently has members deployed at that time to Af- to Afghanistan uh, for some, you know, who knows what, how long, right? Um, so that it became very real, and uh, training that we did became more. Um, targeted, if you will, on the kinds of things that we expected to have to do as young officers uh, leading troops in in that kind of austere environment. At that point, we didn't know, we didn't have any conception that Iraq was on the table, uh, which is ironically where my first deployment was, not Afghanistan, but Iraq. So um, I remember very vividly uh, where I was on 9-11. I was sitting uh, in a senior seminar in the poli sci department. And I want to say the professor was Glenn Hostet. I don't know if he's still there, but he, he was my professor. And the seminar was like a simulations-based seminar. So he would divide the class in two and he would pose, you know, a, a, a real-world problem that required considerations of diplomatic resources and economic resources and military resources and the, the two sides would kind of come up with different proposed solutions or resolutions, I should say, to these wicked problems. So that morning, um, I, w- I was in class very early. It was like at 7.45 or 8 o'clock in the morning class, um, which I'm not a big fan of, generally speaking. Uh, so I was not quite awake. Uh, but I do remember that um, the, the simulation he gave us had something to do with Eastern Europe, I think. Um, and what he would normally do is that he would give, give the problem set and then he would leave and then come back to the classroom at some later point. So he did that. And then at some later point that morning, uh, say around nine o'clock, uh, he came back into the classroom and he said, you know, um, I gave you this one idea, but, but we're going to change it up a bit. Imagine, imagine that international terrorists struck a symbolic site at the U.S. And then he, he start, if I recall correctly, and this is a long time ago, but it, my memory serves, he started to kind of flesh out what the scenario would be. And then, he's, then he kind of stopped and said, look, no, don't go home. Just something has happened. Real world. Go home. Call your family. Turn on the news. Um, something is happening. It looks like, you know, we, we might be under attack. There's, you know, the, the Twin Towers have been hit. Um, you just class dismissed, go home. Uh, so that was, that was my first encounter with that. And I, I lived off campus at the time and went home and couldn't, couldn't reach anybody on the phone. Um, and the news was just, you know, all over it. And uh, I remember later that morning going over to, uh, some friend's house. We were all in ROTC together and, and, uh, we all kind of congregated at this one apartment and we were watching the news and just kind of like dumbstruck with our mouths agape for a couple hours watching this happen and just be totally um, like everybody at the time, complete in, in complete shock and dismay and, and worry. Because, you know, at, as you're familiar with, many of the student body at JMU live in the Northern Virginia area. Their, their parents are government employees, work at or near the Pentagon or in DC. Um, my dad was retired by that point, but he worked uh, about four or five miles from the Pentagon. He routinely went to the Pentagon for work, um, and he just happened not to be be there that day, thankfully. Um, but lots of folks had 
had family members that were unreachable. Um, and that was scary. So that, that was a very vivid, um, impressionable time. Can you share your experiences serving in the global war on terror and your deployments to Iraq? And how did those experiences impact you? I commissioned in 2002. And um, after some initial training as an engineer officer in Missouri, that summer, um, I reported to my first duty assignment, which is at Fort Carson in Colorado. And uh, my, my unit that I was reporting to was a, it's a combat engineer battalion. So basically, um, they're soldiers who uh, kind of tag along with the infantry, attached to infantry, and then are, are specialized in, in certain techniques uh, like um, obstacle creation and obstacle demolition. So uh, very familiar with, with explosives. Um, and that, that's their job, so to help, help infantry and uh, tank forces kind of maneuver in the battle space more effectively. Um, they create fortifications, they demolish fortifications, that sort of thing. So that's the unit I was going to. And, uh, so I got there in September of 2002. Um, and I did for the first couple of months, kind of what most new second lieutenants do, which is staff work. Uh, you're not really assigned to a leadership position just yet because they're still trying to get to know you, whether you're competent enough, uh, whether you're trustworthy enough, whether you're mature enough. Um, so you're kind of hanging out and kind of assisting various staff officers. So I, I was in the logistics department, essentially just department of the battalion for a couple of months. And then, um, myself and, and two other brand new lieutenants who all got there at the same time were told in, uh, just after the holiday breaks so or early January, we were told, um, you're going to go down to these, these, uh, subunits, these company commands, uh, that fall up under the battalion. So you're going to go down to this company, you're going to go down to this company, you're, you're going to go down to this company, and you're going to be a platoon leader in that company, which is great news for us as young lieutenants. That's the job you want to have. That's, you know, the, the formative leadership experience that you're going to have. You're going to lead between 20 and 30 troops, um, and, and you're it. And so that's that's a pretty big deal and, and pretty exciting. But the, the first part of that is that you go down to your unit and you kind of shadow the person you're going to replace for a week. So I did that. And then in that first week, the what we call the balloon went up, which is the, the, the saying that we use when or did use at the time, the deployment order has gone up. We're going to we're going to war. And in this case, it was not Afghanistan. It was Iraq. So the the, the division that I was in, the 4th Infantry Division, um, which is headquartered at Fort Hood in Texas and had units at Fort Carson, was ordered to go to Iraq. But at some future point, there was no mark on the wall, no calendar date, no, not even a discrete location where you're going to go. So that happens in very early January. So when that happens, um, basically everything stops. All the, the training stops, all the, all the other organizational stuff that you do just kind of stops. Uh, personnel moves stop. So instead of taking over a platoon, I was kind of stuck as this shadowing second lieutenant who didn't really have a job at, at this company level. So they kind of made me the assistant executive officer. The executive officer is a first lieutenant, so one grade above me at the time, who's like the, the deputy commander of the company. And I was his assistant. That's not a real job in the Army, but that's what we had to do because I couldn't go anywhere else. 
So that was the first job I had. And then we sat at Fort Carson for another three months. Um, there, there was initial planning for us going in through Turkey and then Turkey denied our entry. So we had to come in through Kuwait um, as some of the other divisions did. So we came in about three weeks after 3rd Infantry Division did. So this is uh, late March, early April of 2003. So we eventually get our unit into Kuwait, into Iraq. And so, and then, and then we just, we, we did um, what felt like kind of like cleanup um, because by that point, um, major combat operations were basically ending. The, the uh, Republican guard was, was no longer the, the, rem- the rest of the, the Iraqi army and air force were already scattered to the four winds. Um, th- there was no functioning Iraqi government anymore. Um, members of the Ba'athist party were in hiding. Saddam Hussein was in hiding. Um, so I, I remember driving through highway one, which is the main North South route through, um, through Iraq, seeing kind of the carnage that our, our earlier units had, had left, you know, husks of burned out tanks and helicopters that had crashed. And it was, it was surreal. You know, it was like going through a movie set. Um, not quite apocalypse now, but as, as close as I would have gotten to it. So we, we spent, our unit spent the first couple of months there kind of rounding up um, uh, weapons, caches, um, things that had been left by the Iraqi army that were fleeing and, and, and making sure kind of like the initial parts of stability operation, just kind of making sure that things are stable enough for life to kind of resume to some sense of normalcy. Uh, we weren't engaged in any direct fighting in, initially. And then uh, President Bush declared major combat operations over, mission you know, accomplished uh, from the aircraft carrier in May, I think mid or end of May of 2003. Um, so at that point, you know, news leaks down to us and we're like, hey, great, we're, we're all going to go home. We'll be home by, by 4th of July. That's fantastic. And it didn't happen. Um, not long after... Uh, units in, in and around the Baghdad area, the Ramadi area, started to experience what was, you know, the nascent insurgency. Um, and there were a number of, you know, factors that led into that and a number of different sources of uh, people, both, you know, Iraqis and from other countries that were coming in and, and beginning to try to fill the power vacuum and uh, take out some some angst on the U.S. Army, uh, which is not surprising. So, because the insurgency was beginning, because things were still not safe, um, they they extended our tour. So instead of the Fourth of July coming home, it became uh, maybe maybe Thanksgiving. Then it became maybe Christmas. Uh, then it was you're going to hear you're, you'll be here until we tell you to go home, kind of thing. Um, but right after uh, President Bush said um, mission accomplished, that's when everyone felt like oh we can start transitioning positions again. So. My company commander became changed jobs. We got a new company commander came in. All three of the platoons in that company got new leadership, including myself. So I finally took over a platoon, um, and uh, and so from May to the following February or March of 2004, I was a platoon leader uh, of combat engineers in Iraq. So we were we were mostly in the Sunni Triangle, north of Baghdad. Um, the major cities in that area were Samarra. Um, Balad, uh, those were the two 
key cities that we were mostly operating in and around. Um, so, you know, by fall, it, it, it was like a full-blown insurgency and we were tasked with, you know, rounding up suspected Bathists and, and suspected militia members and various names for various kinds of insurgents. And uh, some of whom may have had ties to Al-Qaeda, some not, some to the, the Iranians, some not. It, it was just a, a mix of, and, and for me at that point in my life, I'm 22 years old, uh, a platoon leader, it, it, you, you just do what you're told to do, essentially. You go find the bad guys and you don't do a whole lot of uh, theorizing about why you're there. Frankly, you don't have the energy or time to do it. Um, so I, I kind of, I, I just survived that year. Um, thankfully all, all of my, all of my troops made it home. We lost our company commander in a mortar attack, uh, in January of 04, right before, well, about a month, a month and a half before we ended up redeploying. So it was very late in our deployment. Uh, by that point, we, we kind of had an idea of when we were coming home and the mortar attack was not unusual. Our base camp had been mortared quite a bit. Uh, and for those who don't know, mortar is just kind of a small artillery round, um, but they can pack quite a punch. And when they're launched, you know, repetitively in, in small areas, they can create a lot of damage. And we'd been attacked like that many, many times. And one of our jobs was basically a quick reaction force. So when it, when a base camp was hit, we would go out and um, there was a, there's a radar system that was able to pinpoint the point of origin of the round. So we would go to that location on the map and try to find whoever did it or try to find, you know, the mortar tube that they left. That was rarely successful, but that's a major part of the missions that we did. Um, that particular day in early January of 04, um, the mortars came much, much closer to where we were staying, which was unusual. And they ended up hitting the, the, um, it's called a containerized housing unit, uh, basically a, uh, an aluminum shed that, that we live, lived in, uh, you know, one or two people per sack, kind of like a, like a storage unit. And, uh, my company commander was in there. He, he was, we were planning on a, on a, on a mission for later that night. And we were kind of in a lull in, in planning and, and preparation for that. And the mortar just kind of went through the back of the wall and, and he died instantly. So he was our only KIA killed in action in our in our company that that deployment. So we were we were much luckier than other units in other areas of, of the country. Um, so we got a new company commander uh, as a result, and then a month and a half later, we ended up redeploying back to Fort Carson, which was good timing because other units that were scheduled to come back just after us, they were supposed to come back in April of '04. They were literally en route down Highway 1 to go back into Kuwait uh, when full-blown insurgency happened in Ramadi, and they were basically told to stop, put all your weapons back together, you're going to stay and you're going to fix this. So that 12-month deployment for them became 15 months or 18 months. Uh, so they, they were all planning on coming home. You know, They had flights booked, family members were going to come in and meet them at, at whatever station that they were stationed at. and uh, all that changed for them. So we were pretty fortunate that we didn't have to, to, to manage that, that problem. So I got back to Fort Carson in early spring of 04. And, uh, that was the, the end of, of that deployment. And not long after, um, I applied, I applied to the, the army's funded legal education program and, and then went to law school the following year. 
So that was my first deployment. Um, fast forward like another six or seven years and I'm a lawyer in the army and stationed at Fort Hood. And uh, lo and behold, we're still in Iraq um, and Afghanistan. And the unit that I was assigned to at that point, 2009, 2010, um, was scheduled. Now, at this point, there was such a routine uh, process of units training for departing, um, operating in Iraq or Afghanistan, then returning. There was a full like calendar. You could expect when to go, uh, depending on what unit you're in. So we knew that we were going to deploy at a certain time. And we knew we were going to a certain place. And ironically enough, um, the, the place that my new unit was going to was virtually the same place that I had operated in six or seven years earlier as a lieutenant. Um, not much had changed visually, not much had changed. Um, but my job was significantly different. So I was no longer a platoon leader. By that point, I was, I was the senior legal counsel for the brigade, which is a, a unit of about, depending on the kind of brigade, between 2,500 and 4,000 uh, soldiers. And uh, the legal team, kind of like an in-house counsel, um, is usually a captain or a major uh, who usually has a small staff of uh, paralegals and maybe some junior lawyers. Um, I had one junior lawyer who worked for me, and I had a couple junior soldiers, uh, non-commissioned officers who were paralegals, uh, work for me. And I essentially provided in-house counsel to that brigade commander uh, and staff for all the planning that they did, all the operations that they did for that year uh, in Iraq. So that was 2010 to 2011 was my second uh, and, and thankfully last deployment. Um, so widely different experiences, very similar location, um, uh, ultimately in the same, same, uh, same area of operations in uh, that campaign, if you will, the global war on terror. When did the military start deploying legal counsel in combat? And what kinds of legal counsel were sure. you giving Lawyers have been deployed uh, with combat forces um, literally since 1775, when the Judge Advocate General's Corps was created by George Washington. It was one guy. It was one lawyer um, on his staff. Uh, but that soon expanded and ballooned, um, not much, until World War One. World War One happened, and the, uh, the Army Department of War uh, hired a lot of lawyers, a lot of law professors, a lot of civilian practicing lawyers who wanted to join. Uh, and they became judge advocates. Many of them stayed back in D.C. and provided legal counsel to senior civilian leadership. But many lawyers also went forward, uh, but they were assigned to headquarters units. So like division and core level, you know, two star and three star general officer commands. So they weren't exactly, you know, in the trenches, you know, fighting it out. They were advising about international agreements and laws of war, uh, you know, contract purchases, uh, humanitarian relief, that, that sort of thing. Um, so that really began in, in uh, World War I. World War II, kind of the same thing, just on a larger scale. Uh, Vietnam, similar. Again, most judge advocates were deploying at the headquarters level. Um, but one of the things that judge advocates do, no matter where we are, uh, is try course martial. So the criminal justice system in the military is managed under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, or UCMJ, and the Manual for Courts Martial. UCMJ is a federal statute. Congress enacts it, revises it uh, fairly frequently, um, but it is a criminal code that applies only to uh, service members. 
who are on active duty. Sometimes it applies to contractors who are deployed with the forces. It applies to reservists who are on active uh, duty. It applies to, ironically, uh, military academy cadets and naval academy midshipmen. Um, and it applies to a couple other smaller populations, but for the most part, it applies to active duty soldiers and it's a regular criminal code. So if you commit perjury or larceny or false official statement or kidnapping or rape or murder uh, or assault, um, any of these typical normal crimes that, that happen anywhere, everywhere are punishable under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And the court system that we use is called a court martial. And uh, judge advocates, military lawyers are the ones who prosecute those cases and defend uh, defend accused soldiers or service members. Um, the code permits um, service members to hire civilian counsel if they want, um, but they are entitled to representation by a, a fully qualified licensed military attorney. They don't have to use them, but they, they get one for free. Um, so no matter where we are, no matter what kind of deployment, there's always that capacity that moves forward. Uh, so if a soldier gets in trouble while they're deployed, sometimes, you know, if they're off duty, you know, maybe, you know, in town, they get into trouble with a local or, or they get into a fistfight with a comrade or they, whatever. Crime happens no matter where you are, no matter what the context is. Um, those issues are able to be resolved through the criminal justice system without having to send them back to the United States because that's costly, it's time consuming. And usually all the witnesses and evidence is right there in the theater with you. So we, we, we say that the UCMJ is deployable. It's a deployable justice system. So that's the big thing that most judge advocates end up doing or being prepared to do while they're deployed. Um, the idea of uh, going beyond military justice um, is relatively new, really since the early 90s uh, in Somalia, um, the army kind of led the way for the other services, but we now have a sub-discipline called operational law. Uh, now it's called national security law, but really it's operational law. And what it what it means is that those judge advocates are advising commanders and staffs on the law of armed conflict. Uh, you know, when they write up plans and orders, you know, all those have to get a legal review to ensure that the the tasks and the operations that the units are going to engage in are not war crimes, bottom line, not war crimes. So we're trying to keep everyone out of trouble. We're trying to make sure that it, what our, what we're doing comports with both the letter and the spirit of international law. Uh, we become experts in uh, various international agreements that pertain to that geographic area. Um, we advise on um, fiscal uh, concerns. So when we spend Uncle Sam's money um, on certain things, in operations or at home in garrison, they have to, they're, they're very rigorous and complex legal standards for what has to happen and what things we can spend our money on. Um, when you're deployed, especially commanders have a lot of discretionary funds and they have vested interest in procuring things that, that benefit their mission and their soldiers. And so sometimes we have to rein them back in and say, no, you, you can't do it this way, but you might be able to do it that way. Um, or no, you can't do it at all. Um, so we advise on that. We do a lot of investigations. We, we're a very self-reflective organization. So when something happens that we don't like, some procedural error, some systematic problem, some leadership challenge, toxic leadership, whatever, we do a lot of internal investigations. We, judge advocates, advise commanders uh, on, on those investigations. 
we we advise the investigating officer, which are typically just other officers who kind of get assigned this extra duty. We we basically teach them how to conduct an investigation. You know how to interview witnesses. Um, you know how to elicit information correctly. How how not to violate their rights um, because the Constitution still does apply to us, and it still does apply to us even while we're deployed. In fact, the only uh, the only part of the Constitution that does not apply to service members is part of the Sixth Amendment, which is the right to a jury trial. Actually, the grand jury right and the jury right. That's it. We have a statutory right under the UCMJ to what's called a panel, which is kind of like a jury, but more like a blue ribbon jury. They're, they're best qualified by virtue of several characteristics to be jurors, essentially. It's not a cross-section of the community that are randomly selected like a jury. That's the only difference. First Amendment rights exist. They're just a little more constrained for certain things. Like I can't just, you know, say the president's a, a terrible human being and call him names or her names. I, I have some constraints because that's my commander in chief. And uh, I, I can't do or say things that are going to disable uh, good order and discipline within the command. And as an officer, I have to be especially attuned to, to that sort of thing. But your First Amendment rights basically apply. I can write an op-ed uh, that complains about policy or makes a, a suggestion um, as long as I'm doing so in my personal capacity and as long as I don't violate some other aspect of the UCMJ. Um, sec, you know, Second Amendment right applies to everybody. Um, Fourth Amendment rights against uh, uh, unreasonable searches and seizures. You know, police need warrants based on probable cause. Military police need what's called search authorizations based on probable cause. Same idea, same thing, same standards. Your Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, we have that too. Um, it's actually protected under this under the UCMJ, and it's actually we've had a protection against um, coerced confessions longer than civilians have had under the Miranda rule. So Miranda was a case from the 1960s that basically said, you know, the court, the Supreme Court said, please, you have to give certain warnings to suspects. That only applies though in a, a narrow range of circumstances when someone is in custodial interrogation doesn't happen all that often, but please do it just out of a caution and good practice. Under the military, we've had that rule for investigators since the 1950s. Actually, the court in Miranda cited to the military justice system as the exemplar for how to do it. Uh, so that's interesting. So our Fifth Amendment right is actually has a longer history uh, of being protected and actually applies in broader conditions, more under more conditions uh, commanders and law enforcement have to have to advise us of our rights. So our Fifth Amendment right is actually protected to a greater extent than yours is, uh, ironically enough. Um, so all the other rights are there. Uh, so we, as judge advocates who are trained in the law, we're all licensed lawyers. Um, we have greater familiarity and practical experience with uh, due process. We are the ones who are basically making sure that commanders and staffs uh, and junior leaders are doing the right thing when it comes to wielding all the authority and power that they have um, over good order and discipline of their troops. You have significant experience in military law and have written fairly extensive about military justice. You recently pointed to a military law scholar, Eugene Vidal, who likened the current unwieldy military justice system to a Rube Goldberg machine. Can you explain how military courts differ from civilian courts and how would you reimagine the military justice system and how do you define justice? So as I, as I alluded to earlier, the, the military justice system is, I agree with uh, Professor Fidel, uh, who 
said that uh, military justice in, in many ways is like a Rube Goldberg machine and that it's just overly complicated for no apparent reason. Um, it, it, it is, but it is becoming less so. It is becoming more what we call civilianized. It's uh, ever since really the UCMJ was enacted in, in 1950, um, military law has undergone periodic uh, bouts of civilianization. So th- procedural stuff uh, within courts martial um, have become more and more like typical civilian practice in, in state court, state jurisdictions. Um, it's less idiosyncratic. It's less military and martial kind of um, feeling. You're still, you know, in uniform, you're still in a court martial, but the court martial has all the trappings of a typical courtroom. You have an independent judge. In one, one way in which the UCMJ has evolved or military justice has evolved is that uh, you could be prosecuted and sentenced to, you know, life in prison or, or you know, death sentences even in, in earlier epochs. Um, by someone who was not a lawyer. You could be prosecuted by someone who was not a lawyer. You could be defended by someone who was not a lawyer. And the judge wasn't really a judge. For most of American history, in fact, most of military justice worldwide, that's been the, that was the norm for, for literally centuries. And only relatively recently has that changed. Um, beginning in 1968, American military justice officially has a trial judiciary. So we have judges that are that are lawyers, they're licensed attorneys for judge advocates who are who are senior and experienced, who are then actually trained to be judges. So this, to my knowledge, is unique to the military legal system. You know, most judges are elected, state judges are elected, federal judges are obviously nominated and appointed and, and serve for life terms and good behavior, but none of them are necessarily trained to be judges. You know, they want to be judged, they're elected or they're appointed, they may have zero experience actually in the kinds of cases that they're going to judge. Um, but in the military, you actually have to go and pass school uh, to be qualified as a judge. Even though you're already a licensed attorney, um, you still have to qualify as a judge. And then you serve a period of years in, in that position. Um, so that that's a relatively recent innovation dating back to the, ni- the late 1960s. Um, we, you, know, you have a right to counsel. Um, the counsel have to be licensed attorneys. The prosecutor is no longer a lay officer who has some free time and is a smart person and, and can, you know, make a good oral argument, uh, which were typically the people selected to be, uh, you know, ad hoc prosecutors for certain cases. Now it's an independent, pseudo independent uh, judge advocate lawyer um, who is assigned to be what we call a trial counsel, the prosecutor. And they're supervised by various other more senior judge advocates who have more experience. Um, so um, it's complex in that the jurisdiction applies, um, like I said earlier, across a, internationally, no matter where you are, the system goes with you. And, you know, you could commit misconduct in Saudi Arabia on leave or in Germany on vacation or you know, at Fort Carson, Colorado, or in Iraq during combat, and you can be tried uh, for violating the UCMJ, even though it's extraterritorial, and even though it has nothing to do with your job. Um, so it it's complex in that. It's complex in who it can try, because it, it for now, anyway, it can also try retirees. So after you've served a period of years, you can officially retire, you earn retirement benefits. Um, you, you were subject, as of now, 
this is likely to change, but as of now, you are subject to the UCMJ. So my, my father, who has been retired for now longer than he was actually in the service, um, you know, he's in his late 60s now. If, if he committed a crime in Northern Virginia, where he lives, he could be tried by a Virginia court or he could be tried by a court martial. They could bring him back onto active duty and they could try him. Now, this happens almost never, but again, it can happen. And you can imagine in various high profile cases uh, that, that, that very easily could happen. Um, there was a famous case in the 80s where a senior NCO was charged with um, murder, I think, maybe murder and rape. And he was acquitted or maybe it was a hung jury in a civilian trial. Um, and because justice was not happening, uh, the military, and he was retired at that point, brought him back on active duty and tried him in a court martial and then convicted him. Um, so it does happen. So it's complex in that area. It's complex in the way in which those panels are selected. So again, we don't have a jury right, um, but we do have a panel right. But what makes us distinct and sometimes subject to criticism, uh, lots of times subject to criticism, is that the person who selects the panel members for a given court-martial, it's not the prosecutor, um, you know, it's not a judge, it's not randomly selected, they're, they're hand-picked, essentially, by the commanding officer, a general officer, who is in command of the unit in which the soldier is assigned. It was that commanding officer that decided to take the case from investigation to court-martial. So you can see how there's a, a, at least an appearance of bias in how or who decides to pick the panel members. And there's a reason why civilian communities have it as a cross-section randomly selected so that there is no sense of preference or bias or self-interest or prejudice. But in our system, for historical reasons, uh, and really only historical reasons, um, commanders have had the authority to pick. And the saving grace, if you will, for that is in the statute, in the UCMJ, it actually lists out criteria that those panel members have to meet in order to be on that panel. So based off of um, experience, judicial temperament, um, rank, um, experience, um, those sorts of things, those sorts of qualities, very abstract and qualitative, normative qualities, that person is best qualified to be on a panel. Um, so it's like a blue ribbon panel. It's not a, not a randomly selected jury of, of your community members. These are people who are de determined to be um, neutral, good fact finders uh, who are going to be just in their decision-making. Um, now that's great on paper, but again, there's the appearance of bias. The way in which an another, another function that judge advocates play is making sure when when commanders do that, uh, they're abiding by the rules set out in the in the code and not doing it because they want a particular person on that panel. You know, perhaps they know someone who was a victim of sexual assault and the and the crime is sexual assault and they really want a conviction and so they pick someone or many people to be on that panel who are either victims of sexual assault or have experience dealing with sexual assault victims, um, you know, sexual assault nurse examiners, doctors, uh, that sort of military person, um, the risk of stacking the panel for or against 
that accused is high when it's one person selecting uh, based on their discretion. Now, the, the, again, the saving grace for that is there are lawyers who advise that commander in doing so. Um, and then if there's a problem, a superior commander can reach down and basically erase what is happening and, and kind of start over. It can reassign the case to a different jurisdiction uh, to allow the process to happen. Um, defense counsel often raise this issue of, of panel stacking um, as grounds for dismissal of a case or for appellate relief. So it, it gets raised quite a bit. Um, another thing that complicates this process is, is uh, the idea called unlawful command influence because commanders are so involved in the system at various stages. They're the ones who actually, uh, what we call prefer charges. They're actually the ones who basically indict the soldier, their own soldier. Uh, they can choose to do that. They have discretion on whether to charge someone with a crime um, advised by judge advocates um, because they can issue search authorizations like judges can in certain circumstances because they can put people in pretrial confinement, again, based on certain criteria, uh, because they can, uh, again, they have a role in picking panels um, because they're so involved in that and because they're so naturally influential. They're the commander of that unit. They have a lot of cachet, a lot of authority already, a lot of legitimacy and credibility. And so they can influence people in, in harmful ways, harmful to the idea of due process and justice. So a concept has developed over time called unlawful command influence. And when there's either direct you know, or ob obvious or even apparent uh, influence into the system that, that prejudices the accused in some way, um, that is grounds for dismissing a case entirely um, or, or reversing a conviction entirely on appeal. Uh, so it's a big deal. A, a, a large amount of our time as judge advocates is spent advising commanders on how to avoid engaging in unlawful command influence. Um, but it's not just commanders, high ranking officers of, of any position can do it. In fact, a couple of years ago, there was a high profile uh, sexual assault case in California at a Navy, Navy base. I think it was in California. Um, where the the commanding officer, the admiral, was a, a two-star admiral and was kind of back and forth about whether the fact and the circumstances warranted taking it to a court-martial. And so he ended up talking to the deputy judge advocate general of the Navy, a, another two-star admiral from D.C. And in the conversation, the two-star admiral basically said, look, if, if you don't refer this to a court-martial, there's the appearance we don't want. The military is not taking sexual assault seriously. So, you know, read the tea leaves, if you will. Um, there's a political cost if you don't go ahead and refer this case. It wasn't said quite as explicitly, but that, that was discovered. That conversation was discovered in the process of pretrial investigation, in the course of discovery between the defense counsel and the prosecutor. It was raised at trial, and then the, that sailor was convicted, and so the sailor appealed. And one of the grounds on appeal was that admiral, the, 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 the second-ranking Navy lawyer, influenced improperly, unlawfully, the decision-making about whether to take that case to a trial. And the, the appellate court agreed and said, yep, that, that was unlawful influence. Uh, so it's not just unlawful command influence, it's unlawful influence by anyone in a position of authority. Um, so that was a kind of a wake up call, like, hey, 
even lawyers need to be careful about about this sort of thing. But that's another aspect that makes it complex. Um, the other complexity really is um, how the system is managed because uh, Congress writes the statute. Congress establishes in the statute, you know, X, Y, Z are crimes. Um, here are the elements of those, of, well, not even the elements. Here's the crime defined. Here are some procedural mechanisms in place. Like there's a speedy trial requirement. There's the uh, right to confront witnesses uh, requirement. There's, it actually establishes the kinds of tiers of courts martial, um, depending on the kind of crime it is. The UCMJ does all that. But the management of the system is actually run by the Department of Defense, which reports to the president, this commander in chief. So the vast bulk of our justice system is written and developed and managed by the DOD um, through the chain of command. And so the rules for course martial, the rules of evidence, which are required to be similar to the federal rules of evidence, are still written by DOD lawyers, but ultimately sanctioned by the you know, Secretary of Defense and the President. Um, so the vast bulk of our system is a series of executive orders signed by the president that establish these rules of procedure. Um, actually, for, for each crime, and this applies to any crime in any jurisdiction, there are elements of the offense. So um, for murder, it's you know a, a person, a human being died. Uh, the accused is a person who did some act that led to that death. Um, and there are elements there. And, and for more complex crimes, there are more elements. So it lays out what, what act is culpable and what kind of mental state was culpable for that crime. Well, those are laid out in, in state laws, state statutes, and state legislators write those laws. In our system, Congress didn't write out the elements of those offenses. The president does, not the president personally, but on his behalf or her behalf, and then signed off on by the president. The elements of each offense and how the terms of those elements are defined also established by the president. Uh, and there are a number of other offenses in there that are purely military related, uh, which allows commanders a lot of discretion about how to um, describe some conduct they don't like as having a prejudicial to good or discipline effect. There's another theory of guilt called... Um, of a nature to bring discredit upon the armed services. So basically, if you do something that gives or could give the service a black eye, essentially in, the, in PR speak, um, that in and of itself is makes that act criminal. It might be perfectly normal, regular behavior that's even constitutionally protected. But if under the circumstances, it is of a nature to bring discredit upon the armed services, that can be tried uh, as an offense under the code. And the commanders have that discretion to decide. Um, there are a number of other offenses that uh, basically commanders can can pick at will um, because, in theory, they know best about how to maintain good order and discipline in their formations. And so they are given the authority to decide, yes, this amounts to a crime or this does not amount to a crime. So that's what makes it complex. Um, you asked how how would I change it? How would I how do I envision it happening in, in if, if justice were really the kind of the, the benchmark, well, Congress right now is actually going through uh, a period of in, incredible skepticism and, uh, and cynicism about the UCMJ. And in particular, the role of the commander, not the kinds of crimes that are permitted, not the jurisdiction, but the, the role of the commander 
in deciding to take a case from investigation to trial, specifically spurred by sexual assault cases. There's a very good chance um, that the next National Defense Authorization Act that comes out in you know midwinter-ish uh, every year will include a, a significant reform of the UCMJ, taking away the ability of generals and admirals to what's called refer a case from investigation to court-martial. It might only apply to sex assault cases. It might apply to every felony type case, regardless of whether it's uh, sex assault or not. If that's if that happens, the only area in which commanders would still play a role in that kind of quasi-prosecutorial decision-making would be with regard to what's called the martial, what I call martial offenses, the military-specific kinds of offenses. So AWOL, absent without leave, dereliction of duty, disobeying an order, um, failure to report, you know, those kinds of things, uh, misconduct, uh, you know, as a, as a sentry, very specific military things that, that are not, not crimes anywhere else, but in the military, commanders would retain that authority. Uh, now, if that's the case, if the system is bifurcated in that way, um, that will further complexify, if you will, the system, because you'll have two different tracks of justice going on. And how courts martial will be arranged, you know, what jurisdictions will handle traditional military offenses versus normal, quote unquote, civilian type offenses, um, it's kind of all up in the air. No one really knows because we've never done it before. We've never had that system in place before. But we are, ironically enough, we, we, we think of ourselves as the American military as being kind of ahead of the curve in terms of technology, innovation, leadership, um, you know, being at the forefront, being a, a top tier military, you know, the, the, the model upon which all other militaries are based. Ironically, in my opinion, and maybe some others, including Eugene Fidel, we're probably 30 years behind other peer militaries and how they do military justice. Most other systems have scrapped this process where commanders can can refer any case, any any kind of subject matter, and given it over to civilians. So in, in many places, like in Germany, there is no separate criminal code. If a, if a German soldier commits misconduct, they are tried in a civilian court. It doesn't matter if it happened on a military base. It doesn't happen if it was a military victim. It doesn't happen if it used military resources. It was It's tried by civilians. The only exception is if, if they deploy to combat then there's an exception there. France is basically the same way. Britain has a very complex system in which, and Canada as well, in which um, most military-specific crimes that are kind of misdemeanor-like crimes, crimes that are not that significant, are still handled by commanders. Felony-type crimes, including crimes committed uh, that are military nature, are handled by judge advocates alone. So military lawyers, just not military commanders. And then other crimes are handled by civilian jurisdictions entirely. So there's a there's a whole range of different models of military justice out there. We have been sticking with a certain kind of system, but it has civilianized again, like I said, over time. But it is still very much idiosyncratic uh, and still very traditional in, in many regards. So I I personally think that we have some challenges in justifying the status quo. 
Um, a lot of the writings I've been doing in, in law review articles and in, in uh, venues like Lawfare or Just Security um, talk about some of those challenges. Um, again, when, when, we, when general officers testify in Congress about why commanders should have power X instead of lawyers having that power, um, they often rely on, well, this is how it's always been done, that kind of argument, which is not particularly persuasive. Um, the other argument that's not particularly persuasive is, um, well, if, if commanders don't have this authority, then they are, good order and discipline will just fall apart. Okay. That's, that's a bit much, I think. That's uh, you know, one speculative because it's never happened before. We don't know that that's the case. If you look at other, other peer militaries, that's not the case. Um, and and you're, you're, you're scratching it, you know, clawing it, whatever you can to retain this authority simply because you've always had it. And you fear that if you take it away, then you're going to be somehow less legitimate as a leader, less legitimate as a commander. Really, that's the underlying fear is that you're seen as less legitimate because you can't do everything, right? We have this mindset of commanders are not godlike, but as close as you can get under a democratic republic. Um, They have a lot of authority they can wield at their discretion. And when you say suddenly they can't do that, that, that doesn't that doesn't sit well with people who've grown up in that environment, grown up with that power. You know, we can send troops into harm's way. We can put their lives at risk, but we can't decide to take a case to court-martial. That's the argument that they make. Um, but again, the arguments are based on history and tradition and uh, guesswork in many cases. So in my, in my view, if you take away the commander's authority to deal with sex assault cases, um, there's, there's no good reason to not take it away for other kinds of civilian crimes. Sex crimes are, are harder to prosecute, but they're they're still crimes, and there's nothing that normally different from those crimes than, than murder or kidnapping or any other serious felony type offense uh, that justifies keeping one class of cases away from civilian or judge advocates and keeping another with with uh, military commanders. So I think. Um, if I, if I had perfect control, if I had to say with Congress, then I would recommend um, military-type offenses sticking with commanders uh, because I believe they're best positioned to know whether those military-type offenses actually undermine their ability to command and, commu- and complete their mission, which is why commanders had the authority in the first place. They're best positioned to know what they need in order to execute a mission. So I would keep martial offenses with them, and I would take everything else out and give it to trained, educated lawyers. Now, I have a vested interest in that. Obviously, I'm I'm a bit biased, uh, but I'm old enough in my career now that it doesn't affect me. I'm not going to be the one trying the cases. So I'm just looking at it from a sense of of procedural fairness and logic and what seems reasonable under the circumstances. And in in my view, a lot of what the system looks like now is not justifiable. It's understandable. It's traditionally been that way. It's historically validated in some sense. But it's not necessarily the only way to do it. And if we constantly say, no, it is the only way to do it, then we are, we are at risk of losing our own credibility as professionals. So that's, that's what I try to write about. Lieutenant Colonel Dan Maurer, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters and for the many ways in which you have served and continue to serve our country. Democracy requires shared sacrifice and gratitude to those who have sacrificed. 
We thank you for the sacrifices you have made. While we recognize the fundamental reality that sacrifice is an unequal burden, what advice do you have for individuals who are listening, who've not served in the military, for how they can contribute to preserving, strengthening, and reimagining our democracy? From my uh, study of civil-military relations, the other uh, kind of field that I write in, um, I will say that a, a significant concern is the lionization or idolization of service members by people who are not in service. Um, and then us willingly accepting that um, as if it, we're entitled to it. Um, and after you know two decades, an entire generation of continuous combat, um, you know, it's not hard to see why that has developed over time. Um, but I don't think it's healthy for a democracy. I don't, I don't, I, I appreciate that, that, uh, uh, the professional military is, is respected and, um, f- found credible, um, and is trusted to a degree that it is. I, I wish that, you know, our elected leaders were trusted to the same degree. I wish other institutions were trusted to the same degree. Um, but I don't think it's healthy for, for people to, to just proverbially bow down to the sacrifice that, that, that we make, that we voluntarily make, that, you know, we are professionals and we have chosen this career path, um, just like firefighters do and police officers do. And, um, in any democracy, there should be some level of healthy skepticism and, uh, debate, and we are not without our faults either individually certainly, or collectively as an organization or as a profession. And if the, the civic population should not be um, uh, reticent to, to draw out some of those concerns and to talk about it, because ultimately we, we are drawn from that same population and we go back to that same population. So we are, we are all the same, essentially. So we, we deserve as much criticism and, and reflection as anybody else. Um, the other thing I would, I would just say briefly is... Uh, know, know something about how our system works. You know, you don't have to serve, um, in, in a public capacity, uh, uh, in some way, but, but you should know about the system that you, you are entitled to participate in. So if you're going to criticize or, or if you're going to benefit from the system, you should know something about the system. So I really appreciate what your organization is doing in terms of, of just, you know, civic education and, and being willing to get out there and, and remind people about this is how the, the process is supposed to work. Um, this is this is what right looks like, and this is what right does not look like. And this is your opportunity to engage. Did you know that you had the opportunity to engage in this way? Those are all great things to to remind our population about because we get so wrapped up in our daily lives and our our little bubbles of social media or whatever it is that keeps us um, in our little tight myopic kind of communities, we need to be reminded about, about how we fit within the larger community and what our role is in the Republican democracy in making it work uh, and making it, making it healthy. Um, lots of problems, obviously, but, but nothing gets fixed if we're all cynical and skeptical and not engaged. And it's even worse when we try to be engaged and you don't know what you're talking about. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Jacqueline Dobrin. 
JMU Civics Communications Specialist. Randy Bednickus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University on our website at j.mu civic. Until next time.